Welcome to the Secret Life of Cookies, where we try to solve the world's problems through the miracle of carbohydrates, one recipe at a time, with host Marissa Rothkoff and her dog, Bosco. Hello there, and welcome to the Secret Life of Cookies. My very special guest this week is Andrew Zimmern, the Emmy-winning and four-time James Beard award-winning TV personality, chef, and social advocate. You can typically find him on the Wild Game Kitchen or judging on Iron Chef, but for this episode, he comes to us from his kitchen, where he taught me to make a truly comforting and delicious bowl of Japanese oyakudan. Please, I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed talking with Andrew. Hello and welcome to Andrew Zimmer. And today you are my guest on The Secret Life of Cookies. And I honestly couldn't be happier. Uh, it's for those of you, you may not be listening to this on election day, but we're recording this on election day and giving ourselves comfort and succor, one of my favorite high school words, by cooking and maybe not thinking so much. Thank you. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. It's actually why I cook half the time. Half the time I cook because I have to, right? A child needs to be fed or it's it's my job that day where I'm actually being paid for it and I have to perform. But I'll cook all day long on a set of my dump and stir show Wild Game Kitchen on Outdoor Channel, drive home an hour and a half from Wisconsin where we shoot most of them and then make dinner for people. And everyone always says, well, why do you do that? And I'm like, well, it's my yoga it's you called it comfort and sucker. And, and I I'm with you on that. I, I also just think it's, you know, any day, 365 days a year, my mind is a terrible place to go into alone. So you don't want to do it. The way I sort of chill out is by cooking something. And, and oftentimes it's something just to put in the freezer, but it just gets me out of myself and out of my head. And I love it. I'm exactly the same way as someone who writes and cooks, and it's a great way to sort of work out all the ayahs that I have. I also find, I mean, the whole reason that this podcast started was it was uh, 2020, and we were all going a little mad from COVID, and and we were also going a little mad from the politics that was going on in the world. And so nothing is more relaxing than, in a sense, you and me cooking together over the kitchen island, right? So. That's how this all came to be. We are going to make today what I would call oyakudan. I tend to always parenthetically, you know, either either lead with its proper name. It, it's a it's a braised chicken and egg dish. It's the ultimate comfort food for me. You don't need to fry a cutlet. Most people know katsudan or tonkatsudan from their neighborhood Japanese restaurant. A fried pork cutlet with some egg and sauce and scallion and togarashi over a bed of rice, which is the most popular one. Yukodan is the one that has a fried chicken cutlet. But the one that I make most often, I only need one pan for, and I can make several of them at the same time. If I make them for four people, it's just family, I'll use a big pan, double the recipe, and just, you know, everyone gets a quarter over rice, doesn't have to look that elegant but this is what I'm making for my lunch with you. So I'm going to be able to slide out my oyakudan 
right on top of this bowl that's the same size as my pan. I'm just using a small little eight inch omelet pan to do that in. And it's essentially just simmered chicken and onions with dashi, a little bit of sake, soy, uh, sugar, and mirin. The onions, we're going to drizzle eggs in a very specific way and some, some scallion. And uh, some people like to serve it with togarashi, which is Japanese seven spice. It's a little bit, you know, got a little heat to it, nuttiness from the sesame seeds and a little bitterness from the herbs that are in there. And I, I, I just absolutely adore it. It's like 35 degrees out and looks like it's going to rain any minute. And, you know, it's election day in America. So what better time to comfort myself with food? I feel like I'm invoking Ruth Reichel. I, I feel like comfort her next book, comfort me on election day. That's right. I think that'll be my next book. But yeah, absolutely. I posted okay. something early, early this morning that everyone should go out and on their way home from the voting booth, buy themselves some butter, make sure they have some brown sugar and some chocolate chips in the house because I was going to post a chocolate chip cookie recipe for everyone to make. So either if you're under the couch, on top of the couch, however you're going to be in taking in the election results tonight or tomorrow morning or next week, whenever they actually come in, you have warm cookies. I'm going to do that. I'm going to, I'm going to make your cookies tonight. That's what I'm going to do when I'm home. Something to do. (laughs) Exactly. It keeps us all busy. As my mother would say, busy hands are happy hands, hands that can't go wrong. She was also a Dalton graduate like you. I just want to point that out. But But she went in the olden days when it was people wore uniforms so no one one upped each other and she never learned to write cursive either it was very peace love and happiness then very Um, progressive although i will tell you the because i'm doing the math in my head there were certain professors i bet she was there when hortense tyroller was running the english department which she did for like 50 years and i had hortense tyroller who literally taught me how to write. Miss Mayor, there were a whole bunch of people who were there and bridged several generations. That is one of the joys of going to a school like Dalton was being able to have that relational education to other people. It's a, it, it's a weird world out there. My, my mother talked her about her teachers until the dying, her, literally her dying day, almost literally her dying day. One of them was also a poet. And I found in all her collections, collections of her favorite teachers, poetry. I mean, it was a very special place to be then and now. Anyway, let us get cooking. And before I go down memory lane on behalf of my mother, um, let's get (laughs) cooking. It's like, this is going to be so sentimental. We're going to get comfort food. And Do you have um, an onion? I have an onion. Everything I have is all sort of sliced up. My son is home for election day. So he um, and he fancies himself a chef and especially Japanese cooking. He was like, finally, you're cooking something that I want. Um, (laughs) So I don't know if you were in contact with him or what, but that this is. No, not at all. Not at all. But it's so funny because one of the things that I like about this recipe, and I mentioned this to you when we were getting started off camera, is that. You can literally just make this in real time because it's so simple. As long as you have your ingredients out, I'm just taking my onion and I'm going to throw it into my pan. 
and I have a very low heat on it, I'm going to, while that is just staying warm, I have a, a bowl. Some people like to put it in a cup measure. I mean, I sort of know what tablespoons and cups intuitively look like, but I have a little bowl into which I'm going to put about a half cup of dashi, which is a Japanese stock that's made with shaved, smoked, dried bonito flakes and kombu. I keep it around all the time. I've, I've sort of become obsessed with the idea, like so many chefs have over the last couple of years, that there's no dish in the world, even hollandaise sauce, that a tablespoon or two of dashi doesn't make a little more sublime. And because the dashi is a little bit warm, I'm just dissolving my teaspoon and a half of sugar in there. And I'm just going to pour that over my onions. And then I'm going to add my tablespoon and a half each of my soy, mirin, and sake into there and get my liquids going and then cut my chicken and put it into it. You basically simmer everything together, which it makes it so easy. I love this dish because it's so eminently freestyleable. So now I'm just pouring those other ingredients on top of my dashi. And the reason why I've started putting my onions in first is that as that liquid warms, the, the onions kind of wilt. Because the tricky part for me is that in a pan that is the appropriate size, if I put my onions and my chicken in there all at the same time, it just becomes a tad crowded because the onions are stiff and big. So I just put those in first. I make sure to cut my chicken, you know, a, a large thigh into sevenths or eighths, a standard chicken thigh into sixths, maybe sevenths. And I just do that so I'm, I'm making small enough pieces that they, they cook all the way through in half an hour, 20 minutes, which is how long this is going to cook from start to finish. And because it's, because it's dark meat, um, it's way more forgiving than chicken breast. So, you know, if it's a little small, better to be a little small than a little big. I think your tip also about letting the onions wilt is a good tip for people who, are start, who aren't necessarily comfortable with cooking because it's about eyeing the food, you know, about well, looking in the pan, yeah. right? Yeah, things scare you. Hold on, I'm going to wash my hand because I just touched the raw chicken. But essentially, all I'm doing is now waiting for this to come to a simmer. So I'm just going to raise the temperature up. And the minute that it comes to a simmer, um, I'm going to uh, put a lid on it. And the reason that I put a lid on it just for like five minutes is to make sure that I build enough thermal momentum in there that the tops of the chicken cook. Because right now, I can see my chicken is sitting on my onions. You know, I can prop those onions up all that I want. But at the end of the day, you have to have the right amount of liquid to reduce. We're not making soup to pour over our rice. We're not making 
a kanji. So I have pieces of chicken that I want to make sure sort of cook all the way through when we get enough thermal momentum. So I just cover it for five minutes and then uncover it. And the reason that I uncover it is I want the liquids to reduce for the 15 minutes of cooking time that's going to take while we then drizzle our egg on and put the lid back on. So it's, it's a really wonderful process. And I can see that I'm starting to come to a simmer. While that's happening, I'm going to take advantage of my time here and cut some scallion at about a 45 degree angle. And I think that's one of the great things about this dish too, is that while something's happening, you're getting the next step ready. Oh yeah, a thousand, a thousand percent. And by the way, uh, for people who cook at home every day, like I do, you know, a bunch of scallions that I've taken the tops off of to decorate the, you know, to put on at the end, it doesn't represent a problem for me. For some people it does. And by the way, this is just a simmer dish. So even if you happen to have a carrot lying around, or you just want to take inch long pieces of scallion and just scatter those on the top. So you have two flavors of scallion. Cooked scallion that's been in there with the the liquid as it reduces and the chicken, along with the raw stuff that goes on top, they have much different flavors. Cooked scallion is very sweet, loses all of its ammonia and antiseptic quality. The green scallion, I'm putting fresh on top because I want the ammonia and antiseptic quality. I want that contrast with the sweetness of the onion and the sauce and the chicken. Yeah, oftentimes I'll do that with garlic as well. Like oh, slow yeah. cooked garlic into a dish. And then at the end. Are you a garlic fan? I, I'm a, a garlic obsessive, really, truly. And I, I remember I went to talk to Zan Stewart at Gourmet Magazine of Blessed Memory. And I said to her something about loving garlic. And she's like, this is the tip for you. And that was the tip. Then you can have it fresh, kind of that lovely fresh uh, garlic flavor that I love, and then have that simmery, simmered, sweet, earthy garlic that happens in the sauce. And, and it changed my world. I like garlic, but I'm not a fan of garlic. So, so and sorry. I find garlic is misused by most people. They, they make a pan too hot and then throw it in and it scorches. Um, I'm always throwing a tablespoon or two of garlic into onions and vegetables that have already sweated so that it breaks down, it gets that sweet, lovely garlic uh, flavor. I should tell you that I came to a simmer and I put my lid on my dish and I'm gonna do that just for like four or five minutes while I get my last ingredient ready. And that last ingredient are my eggs. And this is probably the part of the recipe that Japanese chefs will tell you is the most important. Um, and I don't say that to frighten everyone. It's just that the eggs are not beaten so that they are one lemony yellow consistency. They are not left whole to poach. They are simply beaten with one or two motions. Some chefs just like to cut through the yolks with a knife. So that you have that pieces of yolk and white cooking separately in the pot. So what I do is I just break them into a bowl. Uh, and this is usually how I teach this dish. I, when I do this at home, I'll break them on top of the simmer. 
and just draw a knife through them. Oh, smart. But okay. people tend to get very, <laughs> I they, well, like you said, they get nervous. They say, I can't do that. He can do it because he's been cooking his whole life. But that's, that's not really true. Anyone can do it. You just have to realize, oh, that's not dangerous. It's, it's kind of like eating a big lunch and then going swimming at the beach. You we could learn die. when we're really young that we're supposed <laughs> to wait like a half an hour or something horrible is going to happen. So what I do, what I do is I just take my chopsticks and break the yolk. I just pierce it and pull it up. And so essentially what I now have, I've made one cutting motion into each yolk. So essentially what I have now is something that just looks like egg whites with a, two broken egg yolks in them. When you pour that over the dish, it's going to provide a, a blanket and it's going to mix itself into yellow and white streaks. So you don't have to worry about it at all. Yeah, it's not like we're eating raw egg. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I've taken the lid off of mine because it was there a little bit earlier than yours. And should I keep it at a low simmer then to start evaporating it? That's exactly. I'm, I'm going to take mine off just to match yours. Um, <laughs> we've used a really nice natural chicken here. And, you know, the there's not a lot of schmutz in them. Sometimes people are using supermarket chickens that have a lot of schmutz on them in liquid form. And what happens is, is you'll get foam on the top. And I always tell people, if that's the case, just take a spoon and remove it. But right now, all I have is a nice simmer. I'm going to increase it by a little bit. So I have, a, I would just call it a strong simmer. And I'm going to let this cook for 12, 14 more minutes. Then we'll add our egg, put the cover on it, add our scallion, and serve it over our bowl of rice. Fantastic. And it's, I mean, and I can't wait to try it. For the folks at home, um, the difference between a simmer and a strong simmer, what am I going to look for in my pan? A low simmer would just be a couple of bubbles of movement. A standard simmer would be bubbles of movement in many places consistently. And a strong simmer would be what most people would call a low boil. I'm looking at rolling small dots, but only in the center of my pan. And I'm actually, now I can see as, because I turned the heat up, now I've seen that I can dial it back a notch just to maintain that low boil, strong simmer. There really is no going wrong here. I mean, they're chicken thighs and onions, two of the most resilient ingredients <laughs> in the kitchen. White meat will get tough when you, if you cook it too quickly, that IE with too much heat. Dark meat will not. So, you know, it's a very, very, very safe dish for the home cook, which is another reason why I like teaching this dish to people who are new in the kitchen and don't think that they can make a Japanese dish that's one of their favorites in an izakaya, but they can't do it at home. I, I should also say, while we're using, uh, well, I'm using a conventional Western pan, a French saute pan with a lid, if you use a, a pot 
that is made for this in a Japanese kitchen, you will have hundreds of wooden lids because the pans tend to be flat-bottomed and conical. And this falls into the category of Japanese cooking, which is very large, called drop-lid dishes. These are dishes that at some point a lid is dropped in and allows it to actually cook with some escaping of liquid. I should also tell you, I can tell by the smell that my seasoning is spot on just because I know what that smells like. But for a lot of home cooks, I encourage them to taste it and taste that balance as the sauce reduces of salt and sweetness because that's really, the umami is going to be there from the dashi. You really just want to make sure it's neither too salty nor too sweet, and you can adjust it at any time during the cooking process. Absolutely. I think um, I just stuck my finger into it, and the balance is really perfect. I think people who haven't cooked with dashi before might be sort of blown out of the water by how, uh, what a fantastic ingredient it is. I mean, you were saying you can add it to hollandaise sauce. Once you have it, keep it, you know? Well, this is simmering. Speaking of things that are simmering, uh, in America right now, we've got politics simmering. I know you've been sort of talking about, I think politics are actually, they've come to the boil and they've probably boiled over. I don't know which analogy you want to use, but I've been, you know, I've read a lot about you. I've watched you on TV for years and years and years. Um, All your shows are brilliant. You also have spent a lot of your time as an admitted addict and have like gone out into the world and helped a lot of people at the same time, right? And I bring this up for a bunch of reasons, but one is you've spent, from what I see and read, so much of your time, especially recently, kind of finding relief and peace and even sort of a grace in the spirituality of other humans. And I don't feel like necessarily I have that gift right now because I've been watching politics in America for a long time. And it's made me feel, uh, I see divisiveness all around me. And I find it hard time kind of wanting to find grace and, and, Peace in some of the people who are talking to me, either from the pulpit, you know, and by that I mean the political pulpit, or people with, I'm just like, you know, a Trump sign on their lawn or in the back of their truck. And I don't think that makes me a, I'm unhappy with that. And I wonder if you have some thoughts about how you've managed feelings in this time. And sure. I mean, it's, and, and I get asked this by, you know, I've been sober for almost 31 years. I mentor a lot of men and a handful of women in the 12-step programs that I attend and it is and and have for a long time. There was a period in my life where I was traveling way too much and couldn't do that kind of service work, but when I was very early on in sobriety, the very first year I was actually talking about this with a friend of mine who's just a few months behind me who's was the 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 guy who I got high with the most back in New York, and we both wound up here for the same reasons and have stayed sober for basically the same amount of time. And we were talking about things we're most grateful for, and we happened to have landed in a meeting with a group of people in our first year of sobriety that predicated their own recovery on helping other people, service work. And so I realized early on this was, this was what gave me peace of mind 
and empathy. And ultimately, as Brene Brown would say, if you have empathy, you can be happy. And that's literally been my story. The, the more I do for other people, the less I'm thinking about myself and my problems. So, you know, after 20 years, I mean, because I'm dumb and, and stubborn, it occurred to me that uh, maybe 15 years, it occurred to me that I could also do service work in the non-recovering world. <laughs> Um, and so I got involved in, I got involved in a lot of charitable stuff. I got involved in a lot of nonprofit work. I got involved in, you know, helping other people other ways. And at this, literally at the same time, all of a sudden I had a big platform overnight. I had a big platform. I went from being a chef in restaurants here in the twin cities who did some national TV work as a guest player to someone who had a show that was a hit in 177 countries and season one aired. And by the time episode three, season one, three weeks into it, I was on The Tonight Show. It was a weird sort of like instantaneous, whatever the reverse of a roller coaster is. I just, you know, it just, it was like a rocket ship. It just sort of took off. And that, that service work really helped keep me grounded. The, the problem that I see th that you've identified for yourself is really twofold because one part of which I've solved, the other part of which I struggle with and use a different tool. So the part that I solved, uh, and I just was on the phone with a bunch of my old buddies in New York, one of whom is a very, very staunch Republican of the old type. Uh, I remember them. Standard GOP, uh, smaller government, you know, on and on and on. And... Um, his biggest fear was that the the MAGA I mean, and and people quibble about this online all the time. Has the GOP been co-opted by the the MAGA wing, or is the whole thing a MAGA thing? He insists that it is a it is a wing of his party because he believes himself to be a standard dyed in the wool 1980s 90s pre Tea Party uh, Republican. Right. And he realizes that that group is shrinking. And he also realizes that group has less and less power. And that's what makes a lot of people like you and I very nervous is that we don't have those people. If we lose control of the House, uh, you know, by the time people have watching this, we will know, listen to this, we will know one way or another who's in charge of, you know, committee chair seats who who gets to sit in different places and it doesn't sound like it's going to be traditional dyed in the wool 90s 1980s and 90s GOP types it's going to be far right maga types so there was two issues for me at hand number 1 how do i tune it out because i'm obsessed to me everything is politics and i made a firm decision eight, nine years ago, to it's not like I stopped entirely going and cooking a dinner to raise money for hunger. But what was happening is we'd raise $100,000 and those $100,000 checks would go into buckets with $110,000 holes. And it, there really wasn't a point to it. And a bunch of sort of uh, older, more politically motivated food people, we actually all had a, a talk at like three in the morning around a, a pool at a hotel in Miami after a party and said, we're just not going to do it anymore. And a lot of them went on to start really, really important organizations that have done incredible work. 
you know, Tom Calicchio went on to do one of his, uh, his pack, you know, Jose Andres decided then and there, that was kind of when World Central Kitchen in his mind was sort of born, um, that we had to do things that energized human beings, made a difference ourselves, but most importantly, changed laws on Capitol Hill. Because the only way to deal with climate crisis and, you know, immigration reform, hunger, food waste, you just keep going on down the list, is through the powers of laws. And so we decided to embrace that. So I'm, I, I'm endlessly looking at news. I'm endlessly involved in the news cycle, et cetera, et cetera. And my problem, it sort of needed to have an opportunity to solve it, right? So how do I let that go at the end of the day? I do it through cooking. I do it through service work. That being said, there's only so much of that as the son of a pair of gay men, right? As the godfather to a gay man, as someone who has as many friends of every different way they would describe themselves as you could imagine, to which I don't ascribe labels, to have a, and and by the way, with a son with some learning issues and some other developmental issues, we have a party that wants to excise my child, my friends, my family from the world. And that to me, that to me is, I mean, then it turns into fighting words. So how do you take the fight out of that? For me, that's the challenge. I want to respond in, in anger, in fight. And what I have to remind myself is I use another tool, which is just looking back at my own story. When did that ever accomplish anything? doesn't mean I don't get into arguments or disagreements with people, but when did fighting really fight ever, ever change anything? So I try to rely on the words of others. I try to get it out of my head by talking to other people. I asked Al Franken, a friend of mine, a couple of weeks ago, I said, what do I do? And he's like, go out and door knock. And he, he meant it in two ways. Number one, it was the most important thing I could do for candidates in my, even you know, school board. I mean, we're talking about that whole influence votes low down on the ticket. You know, he said to me, it's, it's doing something. And I'm like, oh yeah, it's an action step. There's things I can do to get out of my own head. And I think that's super, super, super important. That's the end of the free portion of this week's episode of The Secret Life of Cookies. If you want even more from Marissa, Join the DSR Network at thedsrnetwork.com to get the bonus segment in this episode, ad-free listening, and many other benefits. Thank you so much for joining me and Andrew for this special episode. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, or better yet, go to his website, andrewzimmern.com. For a copy of the recipe, please subscribe to my Substack at marissarothkopf.substack.com And you can also follow me on Twitter, or take that, Elon, on Mastodon Social, where I am still Marissa Rothkopf. But truth be told, I'm hanging out on Twitter a lot more. Thank you so very much, and have a great week.